Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, the new public editors. So a few months ago, we at CJR decided that it was lame that some of the biggest news organizations in the country had not replaced their public editors or had never named the public editors. These are people whose job it is to sort of stand in for readers and viewers and and tell these places what they should be doing or shouldn't be doing. We decided to name our own. So we have Gabriel Snyder being the public editor for The New York Times, Emily Tampkin for CNN, Maria Bustillos for MSNBC, and Anna Marie Cox for The Washington Post. This week on The Kicker, I'm going to do something I haven't done before, which is get out of the way and let them run the conversation. So now I turn it over to the public editors for CJR. My name is Anna Marie Cox. I've been covering The Washington Post, and I'm actually talking to you from outside the D.C. Acela corridor. I am in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Maria? Hi, I'm Maria Bustillos covering MSNBC as a CJR public editor coming to you from smoky Oakland, California. I'm Emily Tampkin. I cover CNN as the CJR public editor, and I'm uh, in the swamp. I'm, I'm speaking from Washington, D.C. Hi, um, I'm Gabriel Snyder. I am covering The New York Times, and I am glad to be here at the Columbia Journalism School. Maria, I want to start with you. I'd love to just get a sense of kind of how you see MSNBC setting itself up uh, to cover both impeachment and 2020. This has been my question from the beginning of this project. One commonly hears of MSNBC as the the liberal answer to Fox or the progressive answer to Fox. And I mean, I really have not found that to be the case. And the schism between the sort of mindset and background of all the different anchors is going to become, I think, increasingly evident as, you know, the election season progresses because of the schism in Washington. You know, there are a lot of people who are trying to um, maintain, like the Scarboroughs, I feel, are trying to maintain kind of like a, a business as usual mindset where everyone is respectful and everything is nice. Praising of bipartisanship and all that kind of stuff is increasingly looking like it can't fly. I was going to say, you know, it's really interesting, um, Maria, what you're talking about with MSNBC sort of seeing this kind of divergence between how its audience sees it and how it sees itself. And I think that's kind of becoming a running theme um, in this project, um, looking at these different news organizations. And, you know, I've, what I like about this project is it's really, you know, I think about readers of the New York Times. I'm thinking about um, the public and, and, and not necessarily, you know, how the newsrooms, um, you know, kind of see themselves in it. And it, again and again, um, at, the, at the Times at least, um, there has been a lot of controversy and outrage and these Twitter cycles pop up because people do have such a different view of their role in in, in politics in, in, in the year 2019 and going into 2020. Um, you know, I think it goes back to that post-election moment when, you know, so many so many people signed up for, you know, the Times or the Washington Post or all, all these journalism outlets as a, you know, act of opposition to, to, to President Trump. And, um, and, you know, these, these organizations really didn't want that mantle. And, and so there's, there's always this, this friction that keeps on coming in, in different manifestations, but it feels like kind of the, the same story over and over. I think you're right, Gabriel. I mean, 
all of the places that we're covering, CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, Washington Post, all set themselves up explicitly as kind of to counter the Trump era, right? Democracy dies in darkness. Um, CNN has its truth, you know, versus or like fact versus fiction campaign, the apple versus banana thing. Uh, the New York Times has also kind of put on the mantle of a defender of truth. Mm-hmm. And people signed up, to, people subscribed, taking this for what it seemed like it was, right? A, a promise to, to be watchdogs, a promise to um, be combative. And yet that's not always what we're seeing. And I think I want to be very careful to extract the sort of play combat that you might see on camera versus an actual criticism of the administration. Emily, did you want to say something? Yeah. So I think that one thing that I think has been really interesting to see is that when there is so-called Twitter outrage, um, pundits can get quite defensive, right? Or there's, oh, Twitter is not real life or, oh, you know, like who are these little people yelling at me from behind their screens? And I completely get that Twitter pylons can be cruel. And I understand that writing a tweet is not by any means the same thing as doing reporting. But the idea that somebody expressing their opinion on Twitter is somehow less than Joe Scarborough, like sitting behind his Java, opining that it's wrong to boo, I think is just fundamentally untrue, particularly when, as you say, um, these organizations have set themselves up as like the ultimate arbiters of truth and objectivity and justice and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and then fall short, right? Because actually they're hiding behind um, this idea of what like it meant to be a, a newspaper man or newswoman or, or, or pundit um, and putting civility or this, this idea of civility ahead of transparency and ahead of accountability um, to dismiss the people online or, or in person or writing in or, or whatever who feel like, hey, wait a minute, you, <laughs> you are the people who are empowered to report the news are letting us down um, and to disparage them, I think, is wrong. And I think it's something that we are going to continue to see more of in the next year. And let's face it, um, Twitter is what they have instead of a public editor, right? I mean, we have our project, Mm -hmm. but for now, like what people have when they want to complain about some coverage is Twitter. Yes, Twitter is not real life. But like if there's a reaction on Twitter, like maybe it's worth paying attention to. Twitter is the Agora, right? I was having a conversation about this with Astra Taylor a couple of days ago. And, you know, she's really into sort of Greek philosophy and stuff. And I was like, people go on Twitter not to address power, not to speak to, um, you know, media directly. Necessarily, it's one of the things that they can do. But they also go on there to see what each other thinks about stuff. And, you know, I, as a reader, rely on it a lot for many, many things, you know, for Uh, views from abroad, from, you know, many things, and to speak to other reporters and all kinds of stuff. But like, the the main thing is, I think that the public is visible to each other on Twitter, in a way that uh, we desperately need in a world where media is so fractured, and there's so many like dueling agendas. And so I I really hate when people like bag on Twitter. That's all. Emily, do you do you want to talk about what's going on at CNN right now, how you see them setting the table for 2020? So the positive development is that I think that this impeachment scandal has kind of woken CNN up in a way, right? Like they've realized, oh, Republicans aren't going to come on 
and it's okay, we'll still have a show to do and can still report the news and can still be incredibly influential in the American public's understanding of what's happening, right? The non-development is that um, the famous Jeff Zucker line about CNN is that politics is sport and CNN really got that. And I think that CNN still thinks that, right? I think if you look at the way that the debates are framed, I think if you look at the little countdown clock, if you look at the tables of pundits, um, there's still this horse race element to it. I do not know what it's going to take for them to stop doing that, um, because at this point it's so baked into the way in which they report election seasons. Um, but I think that it is confusing to, to viewers, right? I think that it, and I've written about this too, I think that it takes away from a lot of the really great reporting that CNN does and empowers. Um, and I think that it makes it more of an entertainment network at some points than a news reporting network. That kind of um, dissonance, right, between understanding the severity of this moment and of their place in it, and, and, and they do have a particular place in it, right? I don't know if any other network is as attacked as CNN. So there's that, but there's also this kind of unwillingness or, or lack of ability to stop reporting on the horse race, to stop having people sit around a table and yell at each other, to stop having the debates frame like their fight night. Um, and I don't know what it's going to take to get them to resolve the, that, that tension. Uh, Gabriel, and this is something I know that's probably going to be part of the challenge at Cover the New York Times. I mean, it's a multimedia organization these days as well. Um, but how do you how do you see their markers being placed as we go into this like very intense election and impeachment season? Well, their biggest, I mean, they they view themselves as um, very similar to how they've seen themselves for a long time. Um, that is sort of the as the paper of record. That is chronicling, you know, the most important events of the day, and impeachment happens to be one of those main stories right now. Um, you know, it's interesting thinking about these news networks as, you know, they 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 exist as television, um, and there's an entertainment thinking that goes behind that, and that's something that the Times is only just now sort of starting to bring into some of their report. Um, you know, between their podcasts, uh, the daily, or they have a TV show now, uh, the weekly. And, um, and they really, you know, are having to feel out how to present themselves, um, almost as a character, um, in these, in these shows. And I think, you know, that's, there's lots of different little elements of that. You have the weekly is kind of this, uh, segment that is showing a, Crusading journalists to bring forth, uh, you know, the information seems to be the kind of the, the commonality so far. Um, and you have the op-ed page, which is, you know, trying to be a, a, a last bastion of, of centrist heterodoxy. All of these things don't necessarily naturally fit together. To go back to this idea of, of an entertainment is they're having to think much more about an audience. Um, and, you know, traditionally newspaper reporters have been very um, insular when it comes to their readers. Um, you know, there was a long time that the only way that they were getting feedback was letters to the editor. We're going to see more of these these disconnects between its audience as they kind of learn more from, from Twitter, um, which, you know, they famously and I think wrongheadedly appointed as their new public editor a few years back. You know, Maria mentioned that she, you know, gets a lot of value out of Twitter. And I've actually found it a really uh, an obstacle to doing this job because, you know, the Times has been rather in, they've engaged with with me and, and, and I'm grateful that they're having the conversations. But it's 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 actually been uh, difficult in, in some points 
because, you know, I'll have a conversation with someone at the Times and then present them ideas that are coming from Twitter. And it's it, it sounds like they're it is coming from a different world. Um, that was sort of the, the theme of, of my most recent column, looking at their early reporting on on Joe Biden and, and Ukraine. And, you know, there was it was it was almost like a two ships passing in the night situation where, you know, within the times they felt that they got the scoop. They were the first to report that Giuliani was putting pressure on the Ukrainian government and that they did their job and they should be applauded for it. And and I think that's true. But the other the argument was, well, the way you presented it um, seemed to basically validate the the conspiracy theory that Giuliani was looking to push. And it was very difficult to get um, get that kind of engagement. You know, I think that the flaws of Twitter as a platform make it too easy to dismiss. And and so sometimes I feel like I, I, I've taken crazy pills and the notion that their reporting exists in, in an ecosystem where, you know, actors are trying to weaponize information is is just completely foreign to them. They have a real peanut gallery over there. I mean, I'd be interested to know what you guys think, but like even more than the Post, right? Uh, the people criticizing the times on Twitter are like a almost like a powerful cabal in their own right. There's so many of them, you know, and uh, I mean, there's there's a value to it and there's not. And I really like appreciate a lot what you're saying, Gabriel, about how difficult it is when when all the knives come out at once and that sort of mob mentality happens. That's less the case, I would say, for for me, like looking at MSNBC or for others, but like the the person I was going to go back to the entertainment issue because I was so struck by what you were saying about the difference, you know, between the times and how they're having to respond to that. And I really, I really miss David Carr a lot with respect to this because he was able to square that circle so perfectly. I think to listen to the audience, to respond to the audience, to uh, do really like sharp, clever media criticism, um, and you know, like I, I give oxygen to all the places that needed it and you know be entertaining and be entertainment and be a very serious reporter and so i kind of think that there is a path forward and that this has been coming at the times and everywhere else where in the modern world you need to be really alive and sensitive to an audience that's going to respond to you immediately you need to be a good reporter you need to know what to say like on the fly you know all these things and and we've, we've got models for it that are who are great Gabriel, it's so interesting to me that you say that there's two different conversations kind of happening at the Times, and I just want to understand, do you think what's happening is that they see the mob on Twitter, so they kind of shut it out, or are you saying just for, for you, all the noise on Twitter makes it hard to do the reporting at the time? I think it's that former. Um, you know, I think anyone who has gone through the experience of kind of being the the subject of a of a viral you know Twitter moment, the platform creates a its own I don't know it's it, it, I I think it has some funhouse mirrors in it that makes it look even larger um, than than it is um, and and I think it's kind of a human reaction to at that point start shutting people out um, you know dismissing everyone who's criticizing as you know partisan or some other way to dismiss it. I think that, you know, the Twitter is at its worst in its when it when it does get its most viral. Um, and that's when, you know, the conversation kind of loses its moorings to common sense sets of facts and um, and other sort of things that allow people to engage. You know, it's 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 a marvelous tool for individuals to 
um, have a voice, but I, I'm, I'm not convinced that it's a good way to, to be listened to. I broadly agree. Who, whoever is the most like receptive when they're being yelled at by strangers, right? But I also think that, again, in many cases, this is how people are able to interact, right, with the, the places um, from which they get their news. Like I once saw, to go back to the very beginning of this, I, I once saw, um, it was Mika Brzezinski was speaking at the German ambassador's residence and Joe Scarborough was there and he said, oh, after 2016, after 2020, it will be like Donald Trump never happened, right? There are so many people who know that that is not true and many of them are on Twitter and will make that point to Joe Scarborough, right, for the next time he goes on Morning Joe. Um, I think the part of the tension here is that the press is under attack right now, right? Like I think about this and I, I sort of alluded to this earlier, but I think about this a lot with CNN because the president tweets out videos from Reddit or like God knows where bashing this news network, right? It is so deeply irresponsible. It echoes what is done in countries that are not the United States. It's that a reprehensible example for other places of the world. And it frankly makes journalists here less safe. That is true. Separately true is that CNN, in my opinion, um, is doing a lot that deserves commentary and that deserves criticism and that deserves to be called out in a fair and constructive way. And I think that these major news outlets, and I think personally that CNN and the New York Times are kind of, because they're under such pressure and because they you know, take their role as like the merchants of truth so seriously and because they are called out by the president, there's this defensiveness and this inability to separate. It's like, oh, you're just part of the mob that's criticizing the media. You know, everything is fake news, but it's but that that but that's not true. And like, we're real news. And who are you to to join in at this time when we're already under attack? And it's like, but there's a difference between people who are saying you're fake and people who know that you're real and just want you to be better, right? And I wrote about this in my last column with. Um, the Sanders campaign, and this is not in any way an endorsement of the Sanders campaign, but they went on CNN and were kind of like, look, you, you know, you're corporate media, um, and that subconsciously or consciously affects the way in which you cover the healthcare debate. And Brian Stelter of Reliable Sources, to his credit, acknowledged that many people are frustrated with the sort of um, shiny object spectacle way in which the news is covered, but said, well, does it help you guys if you point that out? I mean, maybe it does. Like Trump attacks the media. It does well for him. And it's like those two aren't the same thing, right? <laughs> like this, this, this Sanders uh, man is not saying that uh, the CNN is fake news. He's not saying that he's in a wrestling ring with it. He's not picturing it, like depicting it getting hit by the Trump train or whatever. He's just saying that, you know, that there are inherent biases to, to corporate media. It's a, it's a fair comment. And I think that, um, so basically this is all a way of saying that I think that news outlets that are very powerful can at times get defensive about criticism because they are in a position from which they need to, in which they need to defend themselves from the highest power in the country. Um, and that that has maybe skewed the way in which some criticism is interpreted. I've written, I think, two columns about how I personally think we should get rid of the White House beat as a beat, that you should send the interns, because to glamorize this beat is to turn it in, is to turn it in theater. Um, and that it's too, 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 cover the Trump White House as theater is empowering um, this way of looking at politics and it's also playing into Trump's hands. 
I want to throw out an idea, which I've just been turning over in my own head for the past few days, which is, I wonder if I was, I was wrong because in the impeachment hearings and scandal, the entire impeachment saga, it turns out that the soap opera at the white house matters, that that is actually where the nexus of the impeachment scandal is, is in kind of these weird internecine bureaucratic battles and these personalities like John Bolton's personality clash with Trump. Well, I think it's, I think you were wrong. I think that like watching Stephanie Grisham do her thing right now is extremely edifying. (laughs) I mean, you know, the, the way the White House treats its responsibility to media in this White House in particular has has been absolutely the nexus of everything that has gone on. I think maybe at earlier times you were right, I guess I would say. And now the whole issue of the adversarial relationship between the White House and the press is just, you know, it's like a ball of napalm. So it it's absolutely a focus for what we need to do. And I, I kind of think one of the things that we haven't touched on yet in this discussion is that like every single day is the most important day uh, in the history of the country. And this is the most important election and this is the most important everything. Well, you know, we actually are facing some unprecedented things, you know, in the climate crisis and in the like total, what, what I perceive as the complete lawlessness of this particular White House. And that, causes every single reporter and journalist and person who works in media to sort of call like reach inside himself to figure out what it is we're doing what we're supposed to do and how we respond to what is really a national emergency and I guess like what I'm saying is I agree with you completely this is where you know how the White House treats the press and how the press treats the White House has become the national story I think that this coverage of the Trump White House as soap opera is something that the Post has done really well, that it's actually got these these reporters, Ashley Parker, I'm thinking of Robert Costa, who do a really good job of sketching out the power dynamics and Game of Thrones kind of aspect of what the White House is doing, what it looks like from the outside. I agree with you. I think that the Post in particular, like their White House national security team is arguably the best in the countries. Um, I know that's just, maybe that's a controversial take. I don't, I, but I stand by it. Um, and I think that there are the way in which they've exposed the power dynamics is part of that. Totally. I think that there's a difference between exposing the power dynamics or like the, I don't even know what, like the courtly intrigue, right. And letting the reality show take over because if you let it, this administration will dictate this week on Trump's America right? Um, like, because there's so much, as, as Maria said, because there's so much going on all the time, because everything feels so urgent, because, 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 I think that it is important that understanding the power dynamics of the individual administration officials, et cetera, that's a way in to understanding the policy ramifications, the crises that our country is facing. That's the beginning of the story, not the end, right? So I think the Post has done a really good job of doing it in a way that's edifying, um, I think that the reason that people make fun of, for example, the Jared and Ivanka privately stunned stories of kind of the first year of the Trump administration, right, is that they weren't edifying. It was just like, you know, PR kind of for Jared and Ivanka um, that didn't tell you something larger. It's, I mean, it's kind of how I feel about this is not really about one of our four uh, jobs, but it, it's, it's kind of how I feel about the anonymous 
op-eds of the times around it's now becoming a book it's like well what does this tell us other than the fact that you like tax breaks but you think that things are a little chaotic right now right like oh this is a long-winded way of saying like yes the soap opera is useful no the reality show is not I mean, the reality show is, is, is a, a very good way to summarize, you know, the, the Trump administration. Um, you know, I think that's Trump's way of thinking of life. But I, but I think there is a fine line between, you know, being a recapper of a reality show and bringing some sort of critical insight to understanding what's going on. Um, Emily, you were kind of alluding to this as well. Um, you know, it's, it, I think one of the recurring things that, um, you know, a lot of outlets are doing is they, you know, will get an email alert or uh, get a, will get a phone alert saying that Trump has just said something outrageous and it'll just be the quote of whatever he's tweeted. And, you know, that doesn't actually bring much, doesn't add anything to, to readers, um, you know, that they couldn't get themselves if they were, you know, on Twitter. Um, it basically turns these organizations into a giant retweet button. The challenge, and I don't think this is at all easy to do, I don't want to be glib about it, but I, it, it's, is to figure out a way to present that fairly without, you know, necessarily just being a, an amplifier. And to explain, you know, connecting the dots, for example, of how, you know, we're seeing the Ukraine story that Trump carries around grudges and these personal grudges turn into actions by his underlings to, you know, adjust U.S. policy to, you know, somehow seek vengeance for those grudges. That story makes a lot more sense knowing how volatile the Trump White House has been throughout the, you know, so far and and understanding, you know, the role of his personality ticks is, is good. So all of that those recap style stories um, have 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 lent us something, and I think I agree with you, Anna, that um, I feel a little bit wrong in some of my dismissive takes um, earlier. But I don't think that they by themselves are um, doing the the full job that you know uh, of of explaining how power is operating in the administration. Maria, do you want to say what you're looking at or looking for? with MSNBC's coverage um, the next few weeks or months? You know, we kind of act like he's an anomaly. And, and you know, I think Emily mentioned how, like, Joe Scarborough's like, oh, it's going to be like he never existed. Well, I mean, that's obviously, like, ridiculous. I mean, the, the sort of totalitarian aspect, you know, these guys are would-be authoritarians. And, like, the Republicans have shown signs of this for a really long time. I don't know if you guys remember, like, the loyalty oaths that people had to sign to get into, like, George W. Bush rallies, and stuff like this has like been brewing for a really long time, you know, the sort of equation of the flag with the Republican Party. So as if they own it and everybody outside the party isn't an American, like these are currents that have existed for a really long time. So when I'm looking at MSNBC and I see that, like, you know, quite a number of the anchors and personalities, there are never Trump Republicans who are now kind of thrown into a bind, you know, because they are a party or were a party you know like nicole wallace for example like worked actually on the florida recount in 2000 you know to pretend that this isn't a continuum is going to be difficult in the coming months and so that's going to be a big focus for me is trying to understand how republicanism is uh being treated in you know in a in an environment that like is very very trying so hard to like be you know sort of balanced but I mean, what balance is there, you know, when one poll is a, 
is authoritarianism and the other one is is democracy. Emily, you mentioned that impeachment seems to have brought out the best in CNN. Do you think that trend is going to continue? What are what are you looking at? So I, just speaking very honestly, do not think that CNN, all due respect to CNN, is going to get to a point, is going to get to the point that Maria just brought up where it's like, oh, actually, Trump is the um, logical conclusion or illogical conclusion of decades of American policy. That's never going to be the CNN narrative, right? But what I know CNN can do, because they've already done it at certain points, is one, continue just fully appreciating the severity of this national security moment. Um, I think that they've been really good at that. And I think that looking toward the campaign, I know that CNN has the beat reporters and has the intellectual heft and has the manpower to have very smart policy reporting that fully engages and informs the American reading and viewing public. And I would like to see more of that and less of like this person was a Democratic analyst or was a Republican analyst and is now shilling for you know, this candidate. Um, I don't think that that is useful. And I think that if maybe the balance changed slightly, CNN could have a very fruitful year of campaign coverage. So um, understanding that covering the seriousness of the moment is more important than having Republicans on lying to you or Democrats on lying. But like, again, there's one party that's coming on and lying all the time right now. Um, and then using what you already have, which is just truly talented, tremendous reporters and letting their information and their understanding guide campaign coverage. I, I want to make a little plug because I, I really the best thing about this project so far has been getting questions from people. So my hope of hope is that I do not currently know what my next columns are going to be about because um, someone's going to bring me a really fascinating question. I'm sure be continuing to look at sort of the political ramifications of the Times' coverage uh, decisions. Political coverage right now is so heated, and I think that it is a bit of a high-wire act. Um, and I am very sure that you know future future columns are going to come about um, asking why you know certain coverage may have been slanted one way or the other. I'm very interested in the Times' relationship with uh, various tech platforms that um, you know it has this this. Uh, it now depends on to reach its audience, um, and and it's some of the um, interesting comments I've I've gotten from from readers um, coming from sort of the tech world has been kind of you know scrutinizing it the uh, its coverage decisions um, in a way that um, is uh, asking basically does its business interests affect some of the views of of a Facebook or Google or other other big platforms. We didn't talk much about their election coverage, and I think that's the place that I'm already having kind of the most, um, I think I can use the word irritation. The coverage of the Democratic primary, I feel like the Post is falling victim to the same narrative that, you know, most mainstream media does, which is looking for looking for heroes and villains, looking for personalities, um, looking on reporting out punditry rather than reporting out policy. I have a couple of articles in mind, but I won't name them right now. I'm just trying to look for trends more than anything else. It was wonderful chatting with y'all. Um, see you later and goodbye. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. So you can read all of the coverage of the public editors on CJR.org as they continue their work tracking these companies, and as well as everything else that we do. Check out our email, The Media Today. 
in our app galley, which you can access via the App Store, which is a kind of slow-moving conversation about everything going on in journalism. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. <laughs>